Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you're here. I'm sure my mic's on. And welcome to the people who are watching on the live stream. Uh, it's just a few announcements here. Uh, one is, is that uh, the education team is going to get, we haven't been able to have Sunday school, of course, because of uh, uh, just uh, not meeting here and the weird service hours. And the education team wanted to start up uh, something like Sunday school, or at least to get that going again. So for kids who are Sunday school age, so uh, as defined here, preschool through eighth grade, you can run downstairs after the service and there will be uh, stuff down there for you to do. There will be some food and um, a lesson, and I think there's an Advent wreath to make down there or something like that. So uh, thanks to the education team for getting that going again and for uh, getting that kicked off. Hopefully, as time goes on here, we'll be able to uh, get things changed around so we can actually start uh, meeting in person uh, hopefully someday soon. Uh, other, other things on the schedule for today, uh, Bible study at 1230, that's on Zoom. If you want to participate, let me know. Um, youth confirmation at 1130 today, new members class at 6 o'clock tonight. Uh, next week there's a congregational meeting and um, after the 1015 service, so at 1130. There's a few things that we're going to be doing in that. We're going to be uh, voting on uh, constitution and bylaws. You can pick up a copy of that back there. Voting on the budget for next year. You can pick up a copy of that back there. And also uh, voting on uh, officers, uh, elders and deacons. Uh, you can pick up a copy of that back there as well. On the deacon list, if you could do me a favor and add uh, Jen Weber as a deaconess in charge of fellowship. Her name's not on the list. But she, um, she should be on there. So if you could do that for me, that'll be next week at the 1030 service. That'll be live streamed too. So um, if you're interested in participating via live stream, uh, you can do that. A youth group this Tuesday, um, midweek Advent service, Wednesday at 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, that'll be live streamed, so you can watch that on our YouTube channel if you can't be here in person. Uh, there's some thanks that uh, the Mercy Ministries team wants to give for a few things. One, the Thanksgiving meals. Uh, we fed seven families at Thanksgiving, uh, in the college care packages, so thanks to everybody who helped with those. Uh, also, some Christmas ministries to be involved in as well. Uh, so if you have any questions, uh, talk to Sandy Hall about those. Talk to Stacy Stocky about youth group questions. Uh, they have uh, a Mercy Ministry event coming up here in a couple weeks, which she announced to us last week, uh, uh, doing some homeless ministry in Granite City. So get a hold of them, read the announcements. That's all I've got for right now. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray a prayer of confession this morning. And for those of you who grew up in the Lutheran Church, you're going to recognize this prayer at the beginning. And then the words are going to be a little bit different. And the reason why is because this is, in, the, in our prayer book, this is the prayer of confession for pastors. And so I th it's actually uh, pretty good for everybody, and so I thought I would include that this morning. So pray, pray this out loud with me if you would. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities. Especially do I acknowledge my neglect of prayer, my indifference to your word, and my seeking after worldly luxury and self-promotion. I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray of your boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, forgive me all my sins, and be gracious and merciful to me. 
Cleanse me through Your Spirit by the blood of Jesus Christ. And give me more and more power and willingness to strive after holiness. For You have called me to be holy and blameless before You in love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from 1 John. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Amen. Psalms from Psalm 25, the opening line is from Zechariah 9. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 64. Isaiah is going to pray. He's praying, you know, God, we want you to come down. And what he's doing, he's, he's talking, he's, he's preaching to a culture where God is not there. God's abandoned his temple. This is why they're in exile in Babylon. Uh, but the prayer is for God to return and to make all things new. This is what Isaiah says. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are, the, you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 13th chapter. Jesus said, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows are in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the gospel of the Lord.
This reading is from 1 Corinthians, right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the Word of the Lord. Well, this is the um, uh, first Sunday in Advent, which makes this the first Sunday in the church year. Uh, Why does the church year uh, begin? Uh, four weeks before Christmas? That's a good question. Uh, it's because uh, the church year uh, revolves around, you know, unlike the fiscal year, or the calendar year, the church year revolves around the life of Jesus. At the heart of our, our life as Christians is uh, the birth, uh, life, kingdom proclamation, death and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. So the church year functions as a rhythm that all of our life circles around. All of our life, also our lives are rhythmic lives, but the, the rhythm, the main heartbeat, the main rhythmic heartbeat at the center of our lives is the life of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to begin uh, looking at over the next four. Advent, of course, uh, we're going to spend four Sundays uh, thinking about uh, Jesus coming. We're going to look at Old Testament text um, about uh, the upcoming Messiah on Wednesday nights, we're going to be looking at some of the prophecies and uh, some of the vision prophecies in Zechariah. We'll talk about uh, John the Baptist and his proclamation of Jesus coming, and then we'll actually get into Jesus' birth and life as we get into Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and so forth. Here at the beginning of the church year, though, I, I kind of wanted to start off with um, kind of like a, a New Year's message, sort of like. Uh, something that will help us get through the new year. I mean, who knows what 2021 is going to bring. You never know what a year is going to bring, but almost certainly there will be bad stuff in the next year, almost certainly. And lest we be shaken by setting our foundation on, you know, uh, you know, for, you know what, what if like the most important, the most, actually this is uh, 
here's a criticism of 2020, if you like. You know, our culture values like health and long life so much so that we demand of the medical industry that they give us, you know, our constitutional right to live as long as we can and to live as healthy as we can. And so then when something like what happens in 2020 happens, our cultural idol of good health is completely shaken and shattered. Like, I mean, we're used to like, if you get sick, you know, hey, there's a pill out there or a doctor's visit that I can have. And when that doesn't happen, it, it exposes to us that the thing that we placed our, the thing that we made our foundation actually couldn't carry the weight that we placed upon it. And this is what idols are, right? We put our hope and trust in something that can't possibly come through. And so, uh, lest that happen to us again, you know, in, in, somebody in here is going to experience financial setback this year. Somebody in here is going to experience family problems this year, maybe broken relationship or bad health of a family member. And, and when, you, when you make your idol like family's just everything or like financial security, I just, I'll, I'll be comfortable. When, when that gets shattered, like your life gets shattered. Lest that happen again, Let's try to build 2021. Let's try to see the foundation that 2021 is built upon, which is uh, verse 9. Can we look at verse 9 for a few minutes? There's three things in here that I want to talk to you about. And we'll use the rest of the text too. But uh, basically three big things. So uh, let me read verse 9 again. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, so first of all, the faithfulness of God. That's the first line, right? Second of all, the calling of God. That's the second line here, the middle line. And then third of all, the fellowship of God. These are things that if we can see, these are the found, this is the foundation, this is the central supporting structure of our existence. The faithfulness of God, the call of God, and the fellowship of God. That when bad stuff happens, it's not that we won't be disappointed or concerned or worried or do our best to try and dig out from underneath those bad things. But we will not be personally shaken. We won't be, our, our, you know, the, the rivets won't be popping out of our sides. We won't take on water. We'll be able to withstand these things if our foundation is the faithfulness of God, the call of God, and the fellowship of God. So let's look at those three things real quick if we can. Uh, first of all, that first line is, is just beautiful. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. Um, I've been harping on this since Reformation Day, so forgive me like if you've heard this maybe three or four times in the past month. We Protestants... We, we make a big deal about salvation by faith. Right, rightly so. I mean, that's, it's in the New Testament, right? Like, we're saved by faith. And so we tend to emphasize a lot our faith. Like, you know, what must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's true. But there's an even more foundational, that's, that's in the New Testament, but even more foundational to the story of the Bible than, than the necessity of our faithfulness is the reality of God's faithfulness. God is radically committed to you. He's way more than you are committed to him. You know, what do you do when you sleep at night and you're not actively believing in God? Do you know that you are not unsafe at that moment because God is actively believing in you? God is so committed to you. God is faithful. This is, I, you know, the, book, the writer of Hebrews talks about it in terms of like, not that, again, not that our faith isn't important. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're outside of the kingdom. That's true. But our faith, it's the writer of Hebrews sees you know, our, that God himself, it, he is the author and finisher of our faith. Yes, your faith is important, but your faith doesn't actually come from you. God creates your faith. He completes your faith. 
he holds on to you. So, you know, I remember when my kids were little, you know, you're going to cross a busy intersection in the city, right? And so you say, hey, hey, come here, grab on to me. And you pick them up and you hold them. And, you know, it's just easier than holding their hand. And then you've got to walk real slow and you can see all the cars are like, come on, let's move it, buddy. So you pick them up and you carry them. And when your kid gets to the other side of the street, if somebody would ask, you know, my son, you know, when he's two years old, how did you get over here? He might say something along the lines of like, well, I held on to my dad. Which is totally true. That's how he got there. He grabbed on to me. But, but that, that actually happened because I picked him up and held on to him first. I said, hey, hold on to me. I grabbed him. I held on to him. He held on to me too. Yes, that's important. But behind that is me holding on to him first. Look, there are going to be things that, that are going to happen this next year, well, your whole life, right? Where you're like, I don't know if God knows what's going on. Like, God, where are you at in this? Can, can you hear me? So what, like, this has got to be the foundation of our life here, that God is faithful. God is committed. That, that means God is committed to you. Look, this is not just, I, I know that God is faithful and that God's always the same. But specifically what Paul is saying here is that God is committed to you. God is determined to bring you safely across the busy intersection. Even when you're blissfully unaware that you're even walking through a busy intersection or that a busy intersection is upcoming. God is faithful to you. The faithfulness of God. Second of all, the calling of God. This next line in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called. You were called by God. You were called by God. Now you might say, I don't know how comforting that is because it sounds to me like God calls us. God's calling to us and then we can decide. You know, God's calling and saying, let me pick you up and carry you across the busy intersection. And we can say, nope, I'm going to run around in this intersection. You know, that's what I want to do. Or I just want to stay on the side of the street. Actually, th- th- there's one sense in, in the Bible where calling can mean that. It can mean this you know, general sort of like God calls to everybody. And people can choose to not believe the call. You know, many are called, but few are chosen, Jesus says. But actually, the way that Paul is using the word called, so pay attention, this is important. The way that Paul is using the word called in 1 Corinthians 1 is the call of God is irrevocable. It's unilateral. When God calls to us, it changes us and transforms us into his followers. It's not like, he's, it's not like, like hey, Aaron, believe in me. Okay, I don't know, should I do that or not? When God calls Aaron, Aaron's transformed to be a God follower. That's the way Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 1. Can I, let me show you so it's not just me saying it. Over in verse 23, he says this. If, you're, if you have your Bible open, you can look at it with me. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. I preach, you know, Paul says, I preach Jesus on the cross. That's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to Jews because the Messiah is not supposed to get crucified. The Messiah is supposed to crucify all the bad guys, not get crucified himself. Jews can't believe in a Messiah that himself gets crucified. It's foolishness to Greeks. It's folly to the Gentiles. Like, you know, you, you know you're studying Socrates and Plato, and somebody's telling you the actually real legitimate truth is not like in the ways of the world and not in becoming wise and philosophy, not in making money, not in, you know, how to control civics so that you can get yourself political power. But actually, the heartbeat of the world is a dying God. That's, that's, just, that's just dumb. That's just foolishness. Paul says, I, I recognize that. For, for people who are on the outside, the message of the gospel is both weak and stupid. It's weak and stupid. But, he says in verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, I'll come back to that word called in a second, 
Christ is not weak and stupid, but Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See how he's using, do you see how he's using the word called there? He's not saying to people who've just kind of heard the call. Everybody who's heard Paul's preaching has heard the call, but to those who are called, he means the call of God that radically transforms the people who have received that call. Who, look, this is how you know you've been called. Do you see the cross as wisdom and power? Or do you see the cross of Jesus as weakness and stupidity? That's how you know if you've been called. It doesn't mean that you like totally get it. It doesn't mean that you're totally like all make all the right decisions. So back, back in verse, look in our text, back in verse five, he says, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. Here's what he means. The te- what's the testimony of Christ? The testimony, is the, st- the testimony of Christ is the story of Christ. Paul says, here's what happened to Jesus. God became a human being. God proclaimed that his kingdom was here and he's now in charge and Caesar's on his way out. God was killed, but God rose from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven, and is now the Lord of the universe and reigns over all. That's the testimony about God. You believe that, and what was the payout? Verse five, every, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Does that mean you got super smart? No, that's actually the way, the, you know, super smart, that's the way the world defines wisdom, is like knowing lots of things, you know, how to manipulate people, how to solve problems. Those things, by the way, aren't, aren't necessarily in themselves bad, but the wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel is actually the dying God came to die for us. That's the wisdom of the gospel. And when you believe that, it enriched your wisdom and it enriched your speech. It changed the way you think and it changed the way you behave so that now you don't see the world as controlled by money. You don't imagine that if you can just make it one more dollar that you'll be happy. You no longer see the world that way. You see the center, the center of the universe and the only hope for your satisfaction and validation as a human being, that Jesus died for you. So dumb. <laughs> like if you even say that out loud to people who don't believe it, you realize this sounds so stupid. And yet Paul insists it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. So hearing that story, you've been called. Hearing that story has transformed your life. You know, so um, it's a big uh, fantasy Sunday morning this morning. Uh, Harry Potter hears the story that he is a wizard. He's not a normal person, he's a wizard. And it radically transforms the way he thinks about himself, right? I mean, his life before is kind of miserable. He's living with family members who don't love him, who who mistreat him. He doesn't really have much of a hope or much of a future. And all of a sudden, everything about him has changed. Where he came from, the way he sees his family is radically changed. The way he talks has changed. The way he behaves has changed. The way he thinks about his own future has changed. It's like Scrooge in uh, A Christmas Carol, right? He, the center of his life is making money. It's what gives him meaning and purpose. Then he has these, he hears this, he sees the story of his own life objectively. He's pulled outside of himself by the ghost of Christmas, uh, by the ghost of Christmas, past, present, and future. And is told this new story. And what does it do? It changes the way he, see, it changes the way he talks and behaves. It changes the way he thinks. He no longer sees money as the center of the universe. When you have heard the gospel story, it radically transforms. So what am I saying? I'm saying that you guys have been changed. Paul's convinced that the Corinthians have been changed because they've been called. I'm convinced that you guys have been changed, that you've been called. You've heard the call of the gospel, and now you see ultimate reality. doesn't mean everything's perfect, but now you see ultimate reality. That's the third thing is the call of God, and the last thing is the fellowship of God. Look at verse, let me read verse nine again. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. 
The calling was into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. So two things that the fellowship, what does the fellowship of Jesus mean? Two things. One is you now have fellowship with Jesus. God has made you friends with himself by making you friends with Jesus. Actually, friends is probably even too weak. God has made you brothers and sisters of Jesus so that now you have an intimate relationship with Jesus. That's the first thing. But I don't think that's the main thing that Paul means here. What he means is, actually, uh, let me beat around the bush for about 30 seconds before I tell you what he means. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God. That word grace is, you know, the word grace can be this sort of generic God's riches at Christ's expense. That's, uh, that's what grace means, right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul likes to use the word grace to mean gift of grace. Grace. The word is actually charismata here, which is the word we get charismatic from. He means spiritual gifts. He, this is exactly what he means in verse 7. I know, that, I, I know this is, the, the, this is uh, a certain in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. What are, the gifts that, what are the grace gifts that God gives us? What are the charismata that God gives us? Well, he describes them over in chapter 12. Let me read this to you, verse 4. He says there are a variety of gifts, the same Spirit. All Christians have the same Holy Spirit, but they have different gifts. Right? Now, what are these gifts? He says this in verse 10. Uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, uh, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God gives you a spiritual gift for the common good, to benefit the body of Christ, to benefit the community. God gives us gifts because we are in a relationship with each other. I think that's, this, is what, this is what he means by fellowship of Jesus. It doesn't, it doesn't just mean that you have fellowship with Jesus. Me, you know, me and Jesus are together now. He means that I've been included in the fellowship of Jesus. He means fellowship of Jesus more in the sense that the, word, that, 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 that the title Fellowship of the Rings, you know, you know, the first volume of The Lord of the Rings. It's not that the people, there's nine guys and they're on this mission. It's not that they, you know, the fellowship of the ring is not that they have fellowship with a ring. It's that they have fellowship with each other because of this ring. You have fellowship with Jesus, but I think what he means here, especially by fellowship of Jesus, is we have fellowship with each other. We are the fellowship of Jesus. We have fellowship with each other around Jesus. We have communion, community, relationship, family relationship, body of Christ relationship with each other around Christ. This is what he means, right? And so this is, this is how we're confirmed, right? This is what he says here in verse uh, 8, who will sustain you to the end. It's this relationship with God in Jesus Christ in this fellowship of Jesus that's going to sustain us to the end. You know, you, you don't need, you have the question like, am I the only one who believes this weak and stupid story about God becoming a human and dying on the cross and that somehow fixes everything? You just have to look around this room and see that there are other people who've heard the same thing and have also been called to believe in that same story. You experience the truth and reality of the story of the gospel in community. I'm convinced that you guys, this is true about you guys. I'm convinced that God is faithful to you. I'm convinced that you have been called by God. I'm convinced that you have been called by God into the fellowship of Jesus. The surprise, uh, the surprise of this story is that Paul is so positive, he's so convinced that God has worked in this screwed up hot mess that is the Corinthian church. If you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that they're like, 
it's just a horrible, it's just a nasty church. I mean, all churches are nasty underneath. You know, if you, if you start peeking underneath the underbelly of any church, you'll find nasty stuff. The Corinthians, like, wear their nastiness on their sleeves, though. Like, he spends the first four chapters saying, you guys have, like, you guys are completely divided up. Your church is divided up into, like, these hardcore cliques, sometimes based on stupid stuff, sometimes based on serious stuff. But it's all, like, you, you're all divided up. At the beginning, he says, you all are divided over, like, your favorite preacher. Like, you like this preacher and this group like this preacher over here, and so can't even get along with each other. At one point he's going to say, you guys are divided up over your weird, weird views of human sexuality. Like one group of the church is like, God gave us sex as a gift, and we all have the Holy Spirit, so whatever you, do, whatever you want to do that feels good, you know, it's just the Holy Spirit working through you. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is like, some of you, like, you frequent prostitutes, and you're like, it's fine, man, I got the Holy Spirit. One of you is having sex with your stepmom, and the rest of you are like, oh man, God's working in that person's life. Then on the other hand, you have a group of people who are like, oh no, that's horrible. All that sexual sin is horrible. We believe that God has forbidden sex. Sex is dirty and nasty. And, it's, and Paul's like dealing with this like crazy, like, no, you're both wrong. You both need to repent. You guys are divided over like one of you is like, yeah, I can go to temple. I, I can go to pagan temples and worship there. Because I worship the true God. And so wherever I go, the Holy Spirit's with me, so it's fine. And other people were like, no, I see you coming home with that meat from that pagan temple. It's clear that you're an idolater. And Paul's like, no, you're both wrong. You can't be an idolater. There, is no, there are no gods but the one true God. But meat is just meat. It doesn't matter what you eat. If you can eat it in faith, it has nothing to do with idols. It's just sold there. He has rich people and poor people in the church. And they get together for these fellowship meals. And the rich people are like, it's your fault you're poor. You should work harder. You should have paid better attention in school. You chose the wrong major. You shouldn't have dropped out and joined that band. All the food and all the wine, us rich people who earned it, we get it. And the rest of you can sit there and watch us eat. And Paul's got Paul's to work on that one. He's got all kinds of, like some, some people are saying, gifts of the Spirit, man. If you don't have the gifts of the Spirit that I have, you're clearly not a Christian. And then some people in reaction to that are like, there's no such thing as the gifts of the Spirit. That's just all, you guys are just making up mumbo jumbo. So Paul's dealing with all these crazy divisions in the church over all kinds of crazy things. And why, doesn't he, why does he start off with like this, I'm convinced that God called you. I'm convinced that God is faithful to you. I'm convinced. That, why does he start off with positive? Well, here's why. It's my temptation as a pastor and as a father to start off with the negative stuff, to say, they aren't going to change. If I, if, I, if I give them positive reinforcement, they're just going to keep on doing what they're doing. I'm going to want to jump in there and be like, you, you're stupid, and you, you're stupid too. Both of your sides are stupid. You have to repent. That would, though, that would just confirm bad identity. Some of you have, like, massive scars from your childhood, from a parent or a teacher or a pastor who told you, you always do this. It's the way you always are. Or, like, you're not any, you're not any good at this. You shouldn't be trying this. You sh- you're, you're not any good at that. And you wear the burden of that negative confirmation of your identity for your whole life. That's not going to be helpful for Paul to say, this is who you are. In fact, Paul goes to great lengths in 1 Corinthians to say, this is who you you aren't. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, you guys know this. You know that no adulterer, no sexually immoral person, no homosexual person, no greedy person, no swindler, no gossiper, no liar is going to enter the kingdom of God. 
And such were some of you, he says. This is not who you are anymore. That used to be, you used to identify yourself with your sin. Not that you, don't, not that you still don't struggle with those sins, but that's no longer your, your identity. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't start off with negative, you know, negative identity confirmation because that would just damage them. It would just confirm them in their sinfulness. He also doesn't start off with like positive confirmation because Paul knows that no human being can carry the weight of positive thinking. You just can't do it. You know, Stuart Smalley might tell you like you need to tell, tell yourself every day I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That's the one way to get through. But actually, you know that that's not true. You know you're not good enough. You know that you're, you know, you try to be a good person and it doesn't work out. You know that, like, you try to do a good job at work, but you screw up. You know that you wish that you were better at golf, but you just can't get rid of that slice. You know you're not good enough. You know you're not smart enough. You know how, no matter how, hard, how hard you try to figure out those directions, you're not going to get it. No matter how hard you try and figure out that system of work, you're just going to end up having to ask for help. No matter how much thought and effort and, you know, how many spreadsheets you create to make that vacation decision, that things are going to go wrong. You know you're not smart enough. And you know that people don't like you. I mean, that's the one great fear is that people, like, that people, this is my huge idol for me, is that people are not going to be attracted to me, that people aren't going to like me. And yet I know I say stuff and I see the look on people's faces when I say stuff and it's like, uh, I, see, I can see, the, even if I say this, I looked out there at your faces and judging your faces during my sermon, I can see like people are like, what? That doesn't make sense sometimes. And that's, that's I can't carry the weight of, ne- of trying to make everybody like me, trying to convince myself that everybody does like me, trying to convince myself that I'm smart enough to do whatever I want to do, trying to convince myself that I'm good enough to accomplish whatever. I just can't carry that weight. It's a burden that I can't carry and that you can't carry either. So what does Paul do? He goes straight to the gospel. He doesn't say you're, you're lousy and you need to quit being lousy. He also doesn't say you're okay and just keep on being more okay. He says God is faithful to you. Whether you're good enough or not good enough, whether you're smart enough or not smart enough, whether people like you or don't like you, God is faithful to you. You might not really know, like I don't really know if I've got a great relationship with God. I don't know if God's there. God has called you though. God has called you. You haven't called to God and he's answered and said, okay, I hear that voice. A little bit louder. Okay, I'm I'm in with you. No, God has called you. God has put you into his fellowship. God's connected to you and his family. Let that be the hope for 2021. Whenever anything else goes wrong, whatever else happens, God is committed to you. Okay, let's stand and pray. God, we thank you for being faithful to us. We know that we're not faithful to you. We know that oftentimes our minds actively wander away from you. We actively ponder worshiping other idols. And sometimes it's not even active, Father. Sometimes we daydream and we forget about you. Sometimes we fall asleep and we're not thinking about you. And yet, 100% of the time, we know that you are committed to us, holding us in the palm of your hand, that you are radically locked in to your covenant, to being faithful to the promises that you made to us, even when we're not faithful to you. And so we're praising you this morning for making all of this happen. We're praising you for calling us your children and and, uh, confirming us in that faith. Lord, in your mercy.
Father, we praise you for calling us. We don't always call for you, even when we want to call for you. Our calls for you are mixed up with calls for more money, or calls for more pleasure, or calls for just being left alone, or calls for people to like us. But we know, uh, Father, from 1 Corinthians 1, that you have called us, and you have uh, transformed us into people who find wisdom and power in the death and resurrection of your son Jesus. We could not have possibly imagined that on our own. It's too crazy. It's too worldly weak. It's too worldly dumb to actually make any sort of sense to anybody who hasn't been called by you. And so this morning we're praising you for calling us. Lord, in your mercy. And we praise you for this fellowship that you've called us into. Father, this community of people who have also been convinced by your call. The death and resurrection of your son Jesus is the true meaning of the universe. We thank you for uh, the relationship that we find here in this community of you. And we pray that you would sustain us to the end and that you would put us on your mission and that we would let us be a part of the relationship that you have with your son and with your Holy Spirit. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray for everybody who's struggling uh, with sickness and with grief and with all kinds of other struggles, we pray especially this morning. For the family of Neil, whose mother passed away this week, and that you would give uh, him and his wife and kids and all their relatives uh, hope and comfort in the knowledge that his mom uh, is uh, with you now and will be raised uh, with you when you return, when your son returns on the last day. And be with all of us uh, who are worried and who are uh, grieving and who are hopeless and who are uh, scared and who aren't sure of what you're doing or where you're at, convince us afresh that you are the God who loves us and that you are going to make all things new on the last day. Lord, in your mercy. We can only come in and, uh, into your presence and pray these things because you have called us into your fellowship. You've made us the daughters and uh, made us your daughters and sons, sisters and brothers of your only begotten Son, Jesus. And so we come into your throne room praying this in his name. Amen. And now let's pray. Uh, now let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Right. 